Knack knack. Who's there? Uh, yeah, I'd rather not share that with you. Hey, no sweat. Come on in. Make yourself at home and take anything you want. Wait, you wouldn't let a stranger in your house. Why would you let anonymous traffic scrape your website? Introducing IP Info's Privacy Detection API, a fast and simple way to detect malicious traffic. Activate your free trial today at ipinfo.io. And don't forget to use the promo code CODESTORY at checkout. We go to our customers and we say, hey, we're going to build this like tool that's going to generate millions of schedules. And our customers would be like, what do, what do you mean, millions of schedules? Mm. And so for us, it was kind of like, we build a little piece, we build some wireframes, get some input from like five, six people, go back to drawing board, build the next version. Like, like we would go to our customers and give it to them. And then they would be like apologetic about like, oh, well, yeah, it's great. You know, they wouldn't really want to tell us what sucked. And we'd be like, no, 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 no. Like, it sucks. Why don't you tell us why? And it's funny when you say that to someone, they'd immediately be like, oh, we're like, yeah, don't worry about it. We know it sucks. Why does it suck? My name is Rene Marcos, and I'm the founder and CEO of Alice Technologies. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lampard, and today, how Renee Morcos built you the best way to optioneer and explore numerous ways to build your construction project. All this and more on Code Story. Renee Morcos is a builder. When he was younger, his dad told him that he could study anything he wanted as long as it wasn't civil engineering. So... That is exactly what he did. He's built amazing things all over the world and also obtained his PhD at Stanford. Outside of technology, he likes to alternate hobbies and is currently settled into mountaineering after spending some time doing kite surfing. Rene was in Afghanistan working on a project trying to repair the runway that had been struck by RPGs. He observed how hard it was to find the optimal way to do a simple project. While he was studying his PhD, he also noticed that construction sites were underutilized. So he and his team invented a simple algorithm that knew how to build. This is the creation story of Alice Technologies. Alice Technologies is an acronym. It stands for Artificial Intelligence Construction Engineering. And it's the world's first construction simulator. What that means is it can take a construction project like a bridge, a hospital, a tower, put it in our system and it generates six million different ways of building it for you. It'll build it with one crane, two cranes, over time and over time, and so on and so forth. That's basically what, what Alice Technologies does. The reason you want to do that is that construction is relatively complicated. And so figuring out the best way to build something can save you, you know, 17% on the duration and 30% on the labor costs. I guess there's kind of two points, right? One was I was in Afghanistan repairing these RPG attacks on a, on a runway, and I was trying to figure out the best way to sequence the work. I remember thinking, like, this is like a really simple, stupid project, but, you know, why can't I figure out the optimal way to do it? And it turns out the reason you can't figure it out is that there's lots and lots of solutions. You can shuffle crews around in lots of different ways. And so I set out to find the tool that could do that, and when I started my PhD, what I noticed was construction sites are empty. And what I mean by that is that if you look at a construction site anywhere in the world, what you'll notice is that there's lots of empty space, 
and, and pockets of, of, of work. And so I remember I was on a, on a construction site, the, the cruise ship terminal in Amsterdam, and there were sort of the subcontractor, general contractors, the, the person doing the work and the entity that hired them to do the work were sort of very upset with each other. The subcontractor was sort of yelling, like, I can't work any faster, I can't work any faster. And so I, I took a look outside the window and I noticed there's 100,000 square foot of empty space and six people standing in. And so that's how, it, how the journey started. I started thinking, well, like, every construction project I've ever been on has been empty. And so if that's the case, then what percentage of construction site space is used for construction at any given moment? And the answer to that question is actually 3%. So everybody was pretty you know, surprised at that number. It's a very low asset utilization. Factories get 60, 70, maybe even higher than 70%. So we thought to ourselves, okay, well, if you're in Silicon Valley, you know, you're a hammer and everything's a nail. So why don't we do, you know, design an algorithm that's going to go solve this? So we designed an algorithm that kind of go figure this out. And what it would do is allocate spatial usage to construction sites. So it would actually like put people into space on a construction site where nothing was happening. And by doing that, we had invented like a simple algorithm that could solve a piece of the problem. But what I realized at that point is that the algorithm knew how to build. And that was kind of a big, big moment. It didn't know how to build very well, you know, sure, but it definitely knew how to build. And that was kind of the start of it, right? Because it was like, wait, if it knows how to build, well, why don't we, why don't we add resources to it? Why don't we add calendars? Why don't we add cranes? And that's kind of been my ride for the last, I don't know, eight years at this point. One thing led to another and we won the entrepreneurship competition at Stanford and we got money and investors gave us money and so on and so forth. And that's how it went. Well, let's dive into the MVP. So that first version of the product you built, how long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? I mean, it was kind of nuts. You know, if, if you saw what I had after really three years of banging my head against the wall and working 18 hours a day, seven days a week, like we literally had a white screen that had these colored squares that would appear and disappear on it. And uh, those colored squares represented like where the construction processes were occurring. It was like a top view, like a, a drone looking down on a construction site. And those colored squares was where the work was occurring. Yeah, that's what the prototype looked like. I mean, it was written in, in, in Java, you know, they used a couple of like graphics libraries. And yeah, I, I had a couple of research assistants to help me like run it, code it, test it, whatnot. I mean, they were doing it, you know, in, the, in their spare hours while pursuing a degree at Stanford. So yeah, I mean, it took us, I don't know, like probably a year of like trying all these different versions of like prototypes and codes and experiments and whatnot until we you know, felt like we had some experiments that were solid. We started with conceptual research. So that means like, well, what are the pieces of the puzzle we need to think about? And then what information is contained, you know, or pertains to each piece of the puzzle? I was like step one. And I was like, just, you know, think about a whiteboard with a lot of little like squares on it or tables, and, like iterating on how we should represent construction projects in a computer. And then step two was theoretical research, which is okay, now that we have the pieces, how do they interact? And so like if a crew builds, you know, elements in a component, you know, what does that look like? And then once we had that, we had a prototype, which is the thing that I was talking about now. Once we had the prototype, we moved to commercial product. And that was kind of a big difference, right? It, it, and through the building of the commercial product, at some point, someone was willing to pay us, you know, a chunk of change for it. So from that point, then you have your MVP. How did you progress the product from there? And how did you mature it? And I guess what I'm, what I'm interested in that is like, 
you know, how you took it to the next level and how you built your roadmap around, you know, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Alice? You know, it's, it's a good question, right? Because I mean, the classic answer is like, well, I talked to my customers and my customers told me exactly what they want. And then I built it and delivered it to them. And that was that, right? I don't think that's necessarily true. Right. And I think that's what makes building businesses so hard because, you know, if I had asked my customer what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? People attribute that to Henry Ford. As far as I can tell, Ford did not say that. For us, that was kind of the question, right? We'd go to our customers and we'd say, hey, we're going to build this like tool that's going to generate millions of schedules. And our customers would be like, what do, what do you mean, millions of schedules? Mm-hmm. And so for us, it was kind of like, we build a little piece, we build some wireframes, get some input from like five, six people, go back to the drawing board, build the next version. Like we definitely subscribe to that, you know, rapid, you know, iteration mantra of Silicon Valley. We were also trying to run it for our customers. So I think internally we were the customer success folks that were like, okay, well, if you wanted to work on bridges, you need to have like this kind of constraint that we need to build it to. So I think internally we got a lot of input onto what we were building. So I guess one of the things that we did right was that like we would go to our customers and give it to them and then they would be like apologetic about like, oh, well, yeah, it's great. You know, they wouldn't really want to tell us what sucked. And we'd be like, no, 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 no. Like it sucks. Why don't you tell us why? And it's funny when you say that to someone, they'd immediately be like, oh, we're like, yeah, yeah don't worry about it. We know it sucks. Why does it suck? And they'd say, well, and they'd kind of like blurt out like six different reasons. But every time they did that, we'd go take those six reasons, go back to the drawing board and, and sort of fix them. And this sort of went back and forth for a little while. And, you know, I mean, if you do that every single time you talk to a customer, at some point you've got something that's pretty solid. So I think that's kind of really how, yeah, how the story sort of developed. Okay, then let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? I once asked my friend who was a few years ahead of me, and you should always find someone that's like three to four years ahead of because there's certain patterns that really match well. I once asked someone that was three to four years ahead of me, like, hey, how did you build a team? And what they said was everything. Literally, like, you know, put it out on the paper, talk to your friends, use your network, use a recruiter. So, like, it's just like everything on the sun, right? And so I was like, okay, here's what I realized early on. You've kind of got three levers to play with, right? You're you're hiring, you know, the smartest people in the world, the most motivated people in the world, that are the most like emotionally mature and good at being part of large organizations. They have a lot of social skills that they can use to help grow an organization. And so I think from my side, I realized that if if you are going to reduce the the efficacy or reduce the the points on one of those three metrics, you're probably going to reduce the points on the maturity or, or social skill part, if that makes sense. And so, like, the original team we had was just oddballs, including myself. You know, they were just, like, folks that, you know, maybe didn't look, you know, the best on paper, folks that, like, didn't have necessarily a degree in computer science, or folks that, you know, didn't come through the construction management, you know, program or whatever it was, right? And so, yeah, it just took a lot more effort to finding people that were the best in the world, right? But maybe didn't look like they were the best in the world. And so I think that was the trick early on. That's how we built the first team. And I, you know, used my personal network, my friends and you know, contacts at university and I, like everything I could lay my hands on to do it. And that first team was, was incredible. I mean, we had four geniuses on the team and, you know, they were just working. Like I would just put them in a room and watch the sparks fly. I mean, I remember, you know, very quickly within like two or three months, 
they'd ask me something and I was like, you know, guys, I, I really think the best thing I can do is just get out of your way. You know, you guys have been working on this for a while. I don't think you need me. Let's switch to scalability then. So was this built to scale efficiently from day one? Uh, I guess that would be that'd be MVP timeframe. Or have you been fighting this as you grow in any capacity? I mean, for us, like one thing, one interesting thing that happened was when we scaled from like six to 16, you know, I think that's where it broke. At least for me, it does six to 18, maybe, you know, and it really we went from like a few people to like, you know, we quadrupled in size or three and a half X in size and like, Everything kind of broke down at that point, right? We, we didn't have the management processes in place and couldn't really like run the show. You know, I think in hindsight, had I, had I built more processes into the company earlier, maybe that would have been better. But again, like I pointed out, I was working with these like geniuses who, who literally just wanted to sit in a room and like hammer out code. So I don't know. I really don't know if they, they would have been happy with these sort of, you know, constraints. You know, once we had the constraints, they they left. You know, they, they went to find the next gig where they could be sitting in the basement and working 24-7. In terms of scalability, from a customer perspective, like that was never an issue, right? We we were not gonna be connected to millions of people on like day 30, right? So the good news is there's technologies out there that require far more intense like data exchanges than, than, than we do. So that was never an issue. I think once we sort of got track of like processes and OKRs and objectives and that whole area, right? That actually helped us scale. And I think it just got a lot better or easier. The six to 18 scaling was way more painful than the 18 to 70. So then as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I have to say it's Alice, you know, Alice is is a company and a technology. Right. We built something that never existed before. Like we solved a problem that no one's been able to solve. People have thought of it, right? People have talked to me about it, but uh, no one's ever been able to do it. And we're the first in the world to pull it off. It's been a really like beautiful journey. And I think even while we pulled it off, we built a home and a company for, for you know, a lot of people that I think really love going to work. But I'd say that's the thing that I'm most proud of. So the company, both as a vehicle to build this technology and a vehicle that enables people's careers to to flourish in the way it does. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I was was talking about this recently. I I remember very early on, maybe a year into the journey, I uh, was raising money and like, I forget what the, it was an investor and and the conversation was around how much like money are you raising? And I said, well, you know, if I raise this much, you know, I'll have to avoid making mistakes. And the answer was like, Listen, buddy, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And so I made a lot of mistakes. I think, like, here's a really dumb one, right? I wish I would have segmented the market earlier, right? That was definitely, like, I think something that I learned from that I segmented the market earlier. Building a business is three things, right? Finding your ICP or deal customer profile, figure out how to make value for your ICP, and then expand to other ICPs with an ICP, right? And then be very brutal about applying that and say no to everybody outside of your ICP. I think had I learned that earlier, things would have moved faster. I think, you know, implementing sort of OKRs, objectives and key results and processes around this would have also, I think, been a good idea. I think having someone categorize my emails earlier would have probably saved me like a year or two of my life. Okay, this will be fun. What does the future look like for Alice Technologies, the product and for your team? Alice is going to be a key orchestrator in the global construction supply chain. 
Alice is, is, is a software that I think will enable companies to really connect to a global supply chain for materials, labor, and equipment in real time in order to build what they're building. That's what Alice will need to do. Clear and concise. I like it. Well, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? You know, name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. At Stanford, I was lucky. I had two advisors. I had one that was really like a technical advisor and one that was really sort of a, I don't know, maybe like a philosophical advisor. Because ultimately it boils down to fuel. I think a lot of people don't realize that. I think it's kind of interesting how like so much of who you are is defined by why you do the things you do. You know, do you want to be rich so that you make, you know, you, you open a, an orphanage or do you want to be rich so you can buy a Ferrari? And I think for me, one of my advisors was really key and instrumental in helping me work through the personal aspects of, of who I am. In terms of the, the question you asked me, so I guess I'd answer two ways. I think one, from a technical perspective, my idols were... Einstein, Heisenberg, Schrodinger, like quantum mechanics. And I think the reason that is important is in quantum mechanics, you know, two opposites can and do exist, two opposite uh, concepts, right, theories. The reason that's significant in business is that you're faced with such a large amount of complexity that being able to hold two opposing thoughts in your head at the same time simultaneously and then at the last minute as reality kind of, you know, forces, you know, creates a forcing function you, you know, it picks one of those realities for you, I guess is a good way to put it. And I found that to be like very advantageous in thinking about business. In terms of the, the, the other, you know, who do I look up to? I, I spent a lot of time reading Stoic philosophy. And so Ryan Holiday has this 365 meditations, Stoic meditations. And so I got that for everybody in the company. There's like one little paragraph per day that you can read that I, I found to be really inspirational. I'm reading through Marcus Aurelius' meditations. So Marcus Aurelius is a emperor of Rome, and he wrote this really interesting set of thoughts, maybe is a good way to put it. Those thoughts, I think, have helped me think through what my own motivations are and, and who I want to be as a person. And so I guess those would be the two, two idols. One is, you know, the, the quantum mechanics greats and, and the way that they think, right? Because I think that's that's a very powerful way to solve problems. And then second would be, you know, the internal fuel and, and how you generate that. And for me, that's through like the Stoic philosophers, I would say. So those are the two. Renee, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to share it off to the world. Can't wait to share it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I'd give them the best piece of advice that I've gotten, right? So we were at the business school and we we're sort of presenting there and someone next to me, you know, again, three, four years ahead of me. And I, when we were done, so I looked at him and I said, hey, man, you got any advice for me? And he thought about it and he said, yeah, don't take the highs so high and the lows so low. And uh, that would be the advice I'd give the person. That's fantastic advice. Well, Renee, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of Alice Technologies. Thanks, Noah. It was great to be here and hope your listeners have a great day. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Coat Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously.
and thanks again for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.